Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The last few weeks we've been exploring what the church has called epiphany for thousands of years. Uh, Epiphany means manifestation or revealing. And so after Advent, four weeks of Advent, of waiting on Jesus, and then after Christmas, uh, when we celebrate the coming of Jesus, the church uh, celebrates Epiphany, when Jesus reveals who he really is. Uh, And to do this, we have looked at two passages of Scripture already. Uh, First, Aaron pointed us to the Magi who visit Jesus. And this reveals something about the real Jesus. This reveals that Jesus didn't just come for Israel, but he came for all the nations. And then last week we looked at the baptism of Jesus, which reveals something about him. It reveals something about the real Jesus, that he is the beloved son of God the Father. This week we're going to look at the wedding of Cana. When Jesus turns water into wine. Now, most of the time, sadly, this passage just gets relegated into debates about alcohol. Uh, but that can't be why this is in our this this uh, is in our Bibles. This can't be why John recorded this for us. Uh, there has to be a larger reason. What does it reveal about the real Jesus? Well, let's read uh, our text and find out this morning. Once again, John chapter two. Starting in verse 1. This is God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer and Holy Spirit. We need your empowering presence right now. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. 
Well, I once heard this story about the English theologian N.T. Wright. Uh, he has taught theology to students for decades. And during lectures, student would, students would often share their objections to God. And Wright would ask these students to describe God. And after they were done, he would say, well, guess what? I reject that God too. Now, let me tell you about the God who reveals himself in Scripture. The same should be said about Jesus. See, uh, we believe Jesus is God in flesh, and there are so many versions of Jesus out there. And so if we reject Jesus, we need to make sure that we are rejecting the real Jesus. We need to make sure that if we're following Jesus, that we are following the real Jesus. When I was in high school, I heard a very bad cover of a Van Morrison song. And to this day, I tell people that I hate Van Morrison, the musician. But the truth is, I have never really given Van Morrison a fair shot. What I'm doing is I'm rejecting the cover band of my youth. The same is with Jesus. We need to make sure that we are accepting or rejecting the real Jesus, not the cover band. Too often we settle for a second-hand Jesus. The Jesus of our neighbor, the Jesus of our spouse, the Jesus of our parents, the Jesus we see in the news. And so we need to make sure that we are talking about the real Jesus. How do we do that? Well, one way is to entrust ourselves to John the Apostle here in this text that we just heard, because he is telling us about Jesus, and we should listen well. See, John really wants us to see the real Jesus. The word that he uses in verse 11 is sign. Sign. One scholar says, a sign is more than a wonder. It points to the reality of who Jesus is. Signs point. That's what they do. They orient us to reality. There's a sign right outside my window, right behind my shoulder here, uh, that says Timberman Road. It points to this street and it points others to my home. That's what signs do. And the same is true with John. He sets up in his gospel seven signs uh, to direct us, his readers, to the real Jesus. They point to reality. And so John gives us some signs that point us to the first-hand Jesus. And at the wedding of Cana, we see what John calls the first sign, the sign of all signs. John says it points to the unique glory of Jesus. If you look again at verse 11, it says this sign manifested his what? His glory. So seeing glory in the Bible is not like staring into a, a bright flashlight. That's, that's not really what it means. Glory in the Bible has less to do with brightness than has more to do with weightiness. Weightiness. Kavod. When, when you combine the beauty of God and you combine uh, the power of God and you combine the goodness of God and you combine the holiness of God and you combine the gentleness of God and you, you combine all the perfect attributes of God... 
things get heavy. Glory. And that's what God wants us to see in Jesus. His heaviness. His glory. And we can see it in all kinds of ways. If you spend time in this, in this text and with this sign, you can see it in all kinds of ways. I would encourage you to actually do that. But we're going to look at three areas where we see the heavy glory of Jesus on display. Okay? First is the glory of his commitment. His commitment. Look again at verses 1 through 4 at the beginning of chapter 2. So in those days, just for some background, weddings were bigger than ours. Uh, The whole villages were often invited, and it looks like that was true in this case. And they were much longer than ours as well. Often lasted up to a week. Mary, here in these first four verses, makes a very reasonable request, even observation or statement to Jesus. He says, she says, they have no more wine. (laughs) And Jesus responds with what looks really on the surface, if we're honest, to be rude, out of touch and vague. Um, Now, I say on the surface, because if you sit down with this text for a while, you'll see that there's way more than meets the eye with the response of Jesus when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. There's a tension here, isn't there? I mean, you probably felt it when I was reading it. You're kind of like, wait, what? What is going on? There's a tension here. We ought to respect that tension, okay? We ought to respect what's going on. There's a strange tension that actually speaks, according to John, to the unique glory or weightiness of who Jesus is, the real Jesus. And in particular, in this moment, we see something about the commitment of Jesus, his commitment to his Father in heaven and his commitment to his mission on earth. First, his commitment to his Father in heaven. Uh, His words and actions reveal quite clearly that he is on a larger mission. Larger than we realize at this point in the Gospel of John. This doesn't mean that that Jesus is rude to Mary. I mean, it's hard to translate the the Greek word uh, for woman here in a way that doesn't sound rude and demeaning. But know this, the next time that Jesus uh, calls to to Mary, his mother, uh, he uses the same word. And when does he do that? He does it at the very end of the gospel where he is actually on the cross, where he's on the cross and he's hanging on the cross and he says, woman, behold your son. And and then he looks to John, the apostle who wrote this gospel. And he says to him, behold your mother. Which means that on the cross, Jesus is thinking of caring for his mother, obeying the commandment to honor his mother. That's what he's doing. He's being tender to her. He's entrusting her to John at the point of his greatest physical suffering. So there's tenderness and care in Jesus toward his mother, even when he uses this word. So he's not being rude, but we do notice that there is a higher commitment uh, to his father in heaven. Just a few uh, verses later in chapter five, uh, Jesus says, this is verse 30, but my, by myself, I can do nothing for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me speaking of his father in heaven. Do you see Jesus is utterly committed to his father in heaven so that even Mary has to come to Jesus as God's son, not just 
her son. If anybody had an inside track to Jesus, it would be Mary. And in this moment, we see that even Mary needs a Savior. She is like everyone else. So we see the glory of his commitment to his Father in heaven, but then we also see the glory of his commitment to his mission on earth. The strange tension in verse 4 speaks to this mission. When he says, my hour has not yet come. He is referencing Holy Week. He's referencing uh, the time in which he is tried, crucified, buried, and eventually raised from the dead. Uh, Just listen to a few other references in the Gospel of John to this word hour. So in John chapter 7, verse 30, it says, No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Does that sound familiar? And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his arrest, in John 17, verse 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. So Jesus is at a wedding feast, a time of joy, but his soul is clearly troubled. That's where the tension is. We detect an ache in his soul. Why? Well, as we read John, we find out because Jesus knew That he had a cross to bear. A cross to bear. And that cross he needed to bear before the final wedding feast of salvation. And so what this does is it reflects for us right away Jesus' resolute commitment to go to the cross. I have a friend who would go to bed no later really than 11 or maybe no 10 p.m. even earlier and sometimes friends were over at his house and, and, and he would just go to bed. And, and you might think, how rude, right? But in his defense, he made it clear that he did so because he valued his morning so much where he did most of his best work. He was committed to some larger mission. Jesus is more committed to you than you could ever be to him. And we see that on display in this tension, in this text We see this at the wedding of Cana, where Jesus is committed to his hour, to his enduring the cross, and it's shame for you. Jesus sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest and crucifixion, and it's at this wedding feast where we start to see the the sweat beating on his forehead. It's a preview of that day, but even here, he does not give up. He still does what he came to do. When he says, my hour has not yet come, friends, he is thinking of you. This is the real Jesus. He is committed to covering you, covering you with forgiveness. He's committed to taking care of your sin's guilt, of your sin's shame, of your sin's power. He is committed to bringing you into relationship with God. He's committed to restoring you. He's committed to redeeming you. The glory of his commitment. But secondly, this story also reveals his sheer generosity. Despite the awkward start in verses 1 through 4, the passage continues in verse 5 uh, to display the generosity of Jesus. First, he brings out the best, and second, he brings out the most. Uh, he brings out the best. 
So in an honor-shame culture, uh, you don't throw a lame wedding party. You just don't do it. It was the groom's responsibility to make sure that everyone was having a good time. And running out of wine at an ancient wedding uh, would be like running out of... uh, chicken fingers at Raising Cane's. It would be like running out of gas if you're Delta Airlines uh, while you're flying in the air. You just don't do that. Massive, massive fail if that's what you do. In fact, historians point out that the groom could, uh, could get sued by the bride's family if the wedding party was lame. Okay? So I find it incredibly generous of Jesus to help out this groom and and to help out uh, Mary, uh, who is connected in some way to this, by turning water into wine. And not just any wine, but the best wine. Jesus is generous. And then he also brings out the most uh, the jars in verse 7 are not small containers. And John points this out in the text. He talks about how many gallons each, each jar. They're like life-size uh, giant containers. And, and, and so uh, if all that water turned into wine, uh, some people have done this math and they've shown that it would be the equivalent of a thousand bottles of wine. Jesus is generous. He knows that overflowing wine is a sign of God's blessing in the Old Testament. So just listen to these two verses. Psalm 104:15 says, "Wine, he gives wine to gladden the heart of man." And then Proverbs 3 uh, verse 10, "Your vats will be bursting with wine." Wine is this rich symbolic image of God's rich generosity in the Old Testament. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's showing his generosity, his overabundant generosity. He's showing us who he is. He's revealing to us who he is. After all, Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. You don't get that accusation unless you see something of his generosity here. Uh, Most of my 20s, I used to say that if I could find a pill... Uh, that would give me all the nutrition I needed um, in a given day and take that instead of eating food, instead of making food, um, I, would t- I would do that. I would sign up for this pill. And my friends who loved to cook and who loved eating and who loved hospitality and who loved friends and who understood that there's more to food and there's more to wine than simply just nutrition, uh, those friends of mine would argue with me. They would argue with me. They'd find it incredulous that I would make this position. And I thought in those days that I could hold my own. But the more I read the Gospels and the more I encounter Jesus, I see the foolishness of my argument. See, Jesus, the Son of God, who made the world and loves creation, who made, uh, who made our bodies and who made food, this Jesus loves a party. He loves a good vintage. He loves a feast. He is not stingy. He is not too spiritual to, to cater a good party. He is generous and he is earthy. And even though Jesus could justifiably walk away from this wedding because it reminded him of the cross he had to bear. He still shows generosity and compassion. He loves this and he is delighted to give his friends a preview of the great wedding feast that is to come. So the glory of his generosity And then I would just say one more thing. There's the glory of his salvation on full display here. 
Uh, this passage shows us something about his salvation. When Jesus is invited to this wedding, it's as if he sees an opportunity to show his disciples then and his disciples for all time uh, what his salvation is actually about. Remember, Jesus is always telling stories. He's always telling parables about the kingdom, about his salvation. And, and he's doing so by referencing things that he sees around him, everyday objects, everyday things. He'll, he'll look and he'll see a sower. And so he'll, he'll, he'll tell a story about his salvation involving uh, sowing and agriculture. And in this case, he walks into a wedding and he sees an amazing opportunity to poetically show and demonstrate what his salvation is all about. Jesus loves rich symbolism. And this wedding has the potential to be a giant symbol. See, remember, the prophets in the Old Testament compared the day of salvation to a giant wedding with unending wine. So much so that the book of Revelation describes this, this time of resurrection and new creation as a great wedding feast. They didn't just make that image up. They're drawing from Isaiah. They're drawing from the Old Testament prophets. Here's just one example from Amos. This is chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant what? Vineyards. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And so Jesus sees an opportunity to enact this promise that this is fulfilling right now in his presence to preview the fulfillment of that in the future. The wedding, in other words, here is a dress rehearsal, a practice session. And in particular, he is previewing, uh, he is previewing in this, in this sign, three things about his unique salvation. The first is the empty tomb, his resurrection. Do you notice uh, what John says right away in chapter two? He says on the third day. Now, what does that remind you of? And do you think that's on accident? What else happens on the third day? Resurrection. And also, if you count the days from chapter 1, verse 19, and you start counting today's to today, where the wedding of Cana takes place, it is the seventh day. The day of rest. The day of new creation. The day for Christians of resurrection. So Jesus is previewing the empty tomb, even at this wedding. And then he's, as I mentioned, previewing the great feast that happens. So Revelation 21.2 promises a future feast uh, when not Jesus is raised, but uh, not just Jesus is raised, but all who are in him and all of creation is restored and redeemed and all that has been has been restored. This final picture is a rich wedding feast. And so Jesus is saying, look, this is a preview of what I will come and what I will bring to bear this is a preview. But this wedding feast also previews something more agonizing. The cross. 
See, the path to these rich things, the path to resurrection and the path to new creation must go through the cross. In order to feast with us and for us to feast with him, our sin must be dealt with. It must be handled somehow. God in his holiness cannot just look away. And we see that on display in this wedding as well. That's why this feast is awkward. This is an awkward wedding feast. It has a minor key. If verses 1 through 4 were not in this in, the, in this wedding, uh, in this sign, we would just say, this is all joy. But we know that's not true. Verses 1 through 4 bring in an awkwardness, a, a sort of minor key to this. It's the hour that has not yet come. And remember, the only other time we hear Jesus call his mom woman is at the cross, when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And then there is the wine, the wine. So far, all I've been speaking about is the profound blessing that wine symbolizes. But did you know that wine also has another symbolic meaning in the Bible too? Wrath and judgment. In Genesis 49, 11, we're reminded that wine comes from the crushing of grapes. And in Psalm 63, we're told that God's judgment is like wine that makes us stagger. And then in Psalm 75, 8, in Isaiah 51, 22, God's fury is described as a cup. A cup of what? A cup of wine. Do you remember when Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, take this cup away from me. This was before his arrest and before his execution. He says, take what? This cup away from me. What cup of wine do you think he was talking about? Yes, the judgment of God. The foolproof vintage of God's wrath against sin. Jesus was without sin. Yet he took on our sin. He drank the cup that we deserve. And we see that in his face. We see that in his resolve in this wedding. This weekend, I asked my sons to help me take out the recycling from our kitchen into our garage. And guys, I cannot make this stuff up. Uh, When he picked up the paper grocery bag full of our recycling stuff, an empty wine bottle uh, fell out. And gratefully, it didn't shatter, but drops of wine splattered on the floor. And, And my son Henry made a joke. He said, Dad, I'm bleeding. Can't make this up. See, the point is this. Wine in the scriptures has more to say than just blessing. It also speaks of judgment. See, Jesus wants us to have the cup of blessing. He wants us to have the cup of feasting. But he knows it comes at a cost. A cost he paid with his own blood. See, Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that you could drink the cup of blessing. One theologian says it this way. In order to provide for us the cup of blessing and joy in the messianic age, in the age to come, Jesus had to drink the cup of wine of God's wrath for us. 
at the cross. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. The cup of blessing that we give thanks for. Is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing, this cup of feasting, is it not also a sharing in Christ's death for sinners? It is. It is. Do you want to be pure? Do you want to feel pure? Do you want to be pure? Jesus fills these cleaning jars, these purification jars, with his blood. That alone can make you clean and pure. Do you want to have joy? Do you want to have joy? Do you long to have joy that that is on display at a wedding feast? Do you long for that to be in you at all times as a resource? Jesus fills your cup with wine of joy at his expense. Do you want forgiveness? Jesus gives you friendship with God. He gives you feasting with God. You get to sit down with God, the Holy One, in friendship and in joy and in laughter and in mirth. Why? At the cost of the cross. This is the real Jesus. And so how will you respond? Well, I think there are two models for us in this very passage. The first is the faith of Mary. And the second is the faith of the disciples. And if you look at what Mary does in verse 4, into verse 5. Mary doesn't force Jesus onto her agenda. As again, as a mother of Jesus, she of all people would have rights to do that, we would think. Instead, she says, do what he says. Jesus is not co-opted into her agenda, and he cannot be co-opted onto our agenda. We need to encounter the real Jesus right now with Mary, and we need to do whatever he says. There is freedom. There is freedom in that. There's so much freedom there. And conversely, there is so much bondage to doing what we want all the time. We feel enslaved to our desires. We feel enslaved to our wants. There are things that we do we wish we didn't do. There's all kinds of just bondage in doing what we want. When we do what he wants, we experience freedom. And when we see what he has done at such great cost to free us and to forgive us of all of our sins, when we do what we want, how would we not want to follow Mary's advice? Do what he says. There's freedom there. And then the faith of the disciples, the faith of the disciples, they, they just see Jesus. That's what they do. They see the sign. And they said, the text says they believe. They believe. We know the disciples' faith was not a strong, amazing faith. We know that they were often called ye of little faith. But what matters is not the strength of their faith, but the object of their faith. Isn't that right? And the object of their faith is Jesus. They see the sign and they allow it to spark belief. And would that happen to you this morning? You see Jesus at Cana. Is your heart singing? Is your heart longing at all for him? At all? Jesus can use that. Believe in him. Believe in him. Lean on him. Even in weakness. Especially in weakness. We are invited by Jesus. And he makes all the provisions. It's not up to you. Let's pray, Lord. And so we do come to you. We come to you on this Sunday. 
with little faith. But we're done trusting in ourselves. We're done looking at all the popular versions of Jesus and we want to just gaze at you as you're revealed in your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.